If you have your Bibles with you this morning, and I hope that you were able to bring your copy. If you do not have one, there is a copy of God's Word in the hymn rack in front of you. It is of the same translation that I read from, the New American Standard, and we're looking today at the Gospel of John, the third chapter of the Gospel of John in the first seven verses. The title of the message is The New Birth, and this begins a new series of messages looking at the new life that we have in Christ Jesus. So John chapter one, excuse me, chapter three, in verse one. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I say to you, you must be born again. A defining moment is that moment in your life when you discover something new that is life transforming. It changes your life permanently. It's something that you just never get over. And one such moment is when you discover that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and your Savior. That comes not through just the reading of the Word or somebody's witness or whatever it may be, but it comes from divine revelation. It comes from God revealing to you who Jesus Christ is. And when you discover the real Jesus... When you come to understand that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and you realize that you're a sinner and that you need to turn to Jesus and be saved, it is life transforming. It is indeed a defining moment for you. It is so radical, so transforming that Jesus referred to it as a new birth of starting all over again. You must be born again, he said. Now, Paul takes up this same idea and in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, refers to the experience of being born again as becoming a new creature in Christ Jesus. And he says, the old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So there is a transforming, defining moment when things are different and you'll never be the same again. Paul says in the King James Version, you become a new creature. The Greek word there, translation, also means creation. It means that there's something coming into existence that had never been there before. Go back in your mind briefly to the first two chapters of Genesis, where we are told in the beginning, God, which says to us that in the beginning, nothing existed but God. But then God spoke and created thing that is. And so before that, there was nothing. God brought something new. And Paul is saying in the spiritual realm, 
Before you became a Christian, before you trusted Christ, you were dead in trespasses and sin. But when you repented of sins and turned to Christ, something new was created in your life. You got a new life, a new life. Jesus said you must be born again. You must be born again. Now, a biblical example of this experience is Nicodemus. And that's what we've just read from. And the focus again is born again. The word again has a double meaning to it. It means, of course, again, but it also means above. So Jesus was saying, just as you've had a physical birth below, you must have a spiritual birth that comes from above, from the Father of lights, as James says, in whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. So it is something new. It is something not earthly, but heavenly. It comes not only again, but it must be from above. You must be born again from above. So there are four basic things that I want us to examine briefly this morning as we think about this new birth that brings to us new life. And I want you to see, first of all, that this new birth is a necessity. You must be born again. That's what Jesus said to Nicodemus. What he said to Nicodemus, he says to everyone. Look in your Bibles at John chapter 3. Look at verse 3 and verse 5. In verse 3, Jesus said, and I'm pointing out these three words, unless... You cannot see unless you cannot see. If you're not born from above, you cannot see. You cannot understand. And then in verse 5, he says, unless you cannot enter. So unless you are born again, you cannot see and understand the things of the Lord. Unless you are born from above, you will not even be able to enter the kingdom of God. Over in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14, the apostle talks about the spiritual man in contrast to the natural man. The natural man is just uh, any individual, any human being. That refers to his, his nature, his, he's a human being. Uh, a, a, a natural person in their own understanding cannot understand the things of God. Uh, it takes a spiritual person to do that. Because they are spiritual and a natural person cannot understand that. I have talked to many people trying to lead them to uh, uh, make a decision to trust Christ. And at the beginning, when you talk about the things of the Lord and try to explain these things to them, it doesn't make sense to them. They don't fully understand it. There may be some of you here today that what I'm trying to say to you with the aid of the Holy Spirit, it's just kind of going over your head. It, you don't comprehend it. You don't understand it. It's just kind of like nonsense to you. And that's because it takes the Holy Spirit to teach you those things and to unveil and reveal to you these spiritual things. The natural person cannot understand the things of God. You must be born from above in order to comprehend that. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus and to you and me, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You cannot even enter the kingdom of God. There are two reasons why. There's the sinful nature of man and the holy nature of God. The sinful nature of man. Notice in verse 3, he says, unless one, O-N-E. He repeats it in verse 5, unless one. And the word one there can also be translated a man, can also be translated anyone. Unless anyone is born from above, he cannot understand. And the reason? Because he has a sinful nature. 
You remember David in his confession as recorded in his prayer of Psalm chapter 51. He said, my mother who conceived me was a sinner and I am a sinner too. When you were born, you were born with a natural inclination to do evil, to do wrong, to sin. That's just nature. You, when, when a child is born, when you were born, uh, you, you didn't have to be taught to do evil things or wrong things. I mean, uh, you put your hand on the hot stove, you learned to not do that. Mom said, don't do that. Don't do that. And, and so you, you, you have that natural inclination. I, it, the, wet, the paint's wet. <laughs> I'm going to test and see. I'm going to touch it and see. We just, we just want to lean toward evil things. That's because we were born with that inclination. That's, that's our nature. We are sinners. Our mothers who conceived us were sinners and we inherited that sinful nature. And so being sinners, we cannot be with the Lord. We cannot understand the things of the Lord. And the Bible says that all of us have sinned. If anyone, all of us, want to see and enter the kingdom of God, then we must be born again. The Bible says we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There are none righteous, no, not one. There are no exclusion, uh, uh, exceptions to this. Every single person born into this world is a sinner. Likewise, you and myself. And so there's the sinful nature that makes it necessary, but then there's also the holy nature of God that makes it necessary. God is holy, and he cannot and will not have anything to do with what is unholy. And so, and yet God loves us. He wants to have fellowship with us. And uh, he's made provisions for that, as we shall see in a moment. But something has to be done about our sinful nature. You remember when Moses went out to see the burning bush? Uh, and when he was standing there, the first words that the Lord said to him, Moses, take off your shoes. The ground on which you are standing is holy. You remember the experience of Isaiah in the sixth chapter of his prophecy. In the year that King Uzziah died, he said, I also saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. And there were several of them there flying back and forth. And they were saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The word holy means can also be translated separated or separate. Because to be holy means that you have nothing to do with what is unholy. You are separated from that. God is holy, we are sinful. And uh, God, you could just also translate that word holy, holy, holy that the angels were singing as separate, 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 different, different, different. God is different and separate from everything else. He's different than you and I. And so God is holy. You can't stand on holy ground if you're a sinful person. You remember Peter when he was uh, there in the boat with our Lord after Jesus had uh, given his message, told Peter to, to launch out into the deep and, and uh, they were still in the boat and uh, the Lord said, take the net and throw it over to one side. And he, Peter said, well, we have we fished all night. We haven't caught anything, but nevertheless, we'll do that. And so he cast the net. He got full of fish. He had problems getting it back into the boat because it was so heavy he realized in whose presence he was standing. And uh, so he fell at the feet of Jesus in that boat and he said to Jesus, depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. Peter realized his sinfulness in the presence of a holy God. So we must understand we are sinners and God is holy and God cannot have anything to do with us as long as our sins remain unforgiven. So there is this necessity we must by our sinful nature and God's holy nature, if we want to be with the Lord and have fellowship with the Lord and enjoy his presence in our life, then we must be saved. 
Notice the second thing, not only the necessity of the new birth, but there's also the possibility of the new birth. Look at verses 3 and 5 and 7. Again, in verse 3, he says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He repeats it in verse 5, unless you are born of water and of the spirit, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And then in verse 7, he says, do not be amazed that I say to you, you must be born again. Now, notice the word must. He said, you must be born. The word must refers to a moral necessity, a moral necessity. Ethically, morally, spiritually, you must be born again. Now, I don't believe that God would demand of us uh, uh, sinlessness unless he could provide a way for us to be sinless and to be holy. As he, Peter said, you remember the Lord said, be holy for I am holy. How can that be? Well, it's possible. It's possible. God wants you to be in heaven with him. God wants you to have fellowship with him. And it can be done through the new birth experience of the Lord. I want you to leave your, your place here at John chapter three, but take your Bibles and turn to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews chapter seven and verse 25. Hebrews chapter seven and verse 25. One verse of scripture, but there are seven or six things in this one verse that I want to point out to you. Hebrews seven twenty-five. I'll read the whole verse and then back up. Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore, he is able and to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he has always lives to make an intercession for them. Now, six things out of that one verse. First of all, he is able. He is able. God is able. God is able to save you. God will save you. So he is able to do what? To save. That's the second thing. First thing, he's able. Second thing, to do what? To save? Well, for how long? A couple of days? A couple of months? A year or two? What does it say? Forever. Forever. How long is forever? It's forever. How long is eternal? It's eternal. There's no end to it. It just goes on and on indefinitely. Infinity. So first of all, he's able, God's able, to do what? To save you? How long? Forever. Well, how? Those who draw near to God? Draw near to, well, how do you draw near to God? Through prayer? You just go to the Lord. You just bow your head or, or you don't have to bow your head. You can, you can lift your eyes toward the Lord. There are people in the Bible that's recorded praying, standing with their hands raised up and looking up at the Lord. Sometimes we bow our heads out of reverence. Sometimes you get out on the floor and let just stretch out on the floor or kneel. God is not concerned about your physical position as he is your spiritual condition. And so he says, we, uh, he, we must draw near to God. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you, James says. So number one, he's able, number two, to save, number three, forever. And how is it? Well, you draw near to God. Well, how do you draw near to God? Through him. That's number five. Through him, in my Bible, the word him is spelled with a capital H. That's a reference to Jesus. So we draw near to God through Jesus. Jesus said, pray anything in my name, he'll answer it. And there's no other uh, mediator that we have between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is the one through whom we have access to the Father. You go to the Lord in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's number five. Number six, he always lives to make intercession for us. So God's able to save you forever, draw near to him through Jesus, and he'll always be interceding for you right now, this very moment, the Lord Jesus is interceding for me. He's at the Father's right hand praying for me. He's at the Father's right hand praying for you. 
If you're here today without the Lord Jesus as your Savior, Jesus is praying for you that you'll come to a realization of who he is, that you might be saved, so that there is this possibility here. And, and he explains it. That's the third thing, the, the explanation of the new birth. And he uses two examples. I think he makes reference to uh, the physical birth of a child and the uh, work of the Holy Spirit. Notice he says in uh, verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless is one is born of water and of the Spirit. Now, there are different interpretations of verse 5 in reference to born of water. Um, I, I don't, I, I, it's not a reference to baptism. Baptism does not save you. Baptism is not a picture of life. Baptism is a picture of death. You remember when you got baptized, hopefully the, the person who baptized you, and when I baptize a person, I'll lay, we are buried with Christ in baptism. We're raised to walk in newness of life. Baptism is a picture of the death of Jesus Christ. When a person is baptized, you are saying, I am acting out the death and resurrection of Jesus. I'm buried with him in baptism. I'm raised to walk up in newness of life. And so baptism is not a picture of life. It is a picture of the death and burial of Jesus. Uh, notice another thing that baptism, if, if you're depending on baptism to save you, then you're depending upon works, what you can do rather than what God can do. If you can be saved by being baptized, Jesus wasted his time dying on the cross for you. He could just say, go out and tell everybody to get baptized or go out and join a church, whatever. And, and, and then I wouldn't have to die. So baptism, if you're depending on that, we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace that we might do works for the Lord. And so baptism certainly does not save you. So what is it referring to here? Well, I take the approach that he's talking about physical birth. When a, when a woman becomes pregnant for nine months, she carries that child in a sack of water. When the water breaks, it's time for the child to be born. And so I'm, I'm thinking that he's making reference to your physical birth. I believe that Jesus is saying you were born physically you must also be born spiritually. You were born of the earth. You are a human, but you must also be born from above, spiritually. And so he's talking about a reference to physical birth as a person is conceived and is given birth. You, you're, now, how do, you, how do you get conceived? Two things, the word of God and the Holy Spirit. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of the Lord. You hear the message of salvation. You hear the word of the Lord. And the Holy Spirit helps you to understand what you're hearing and leads you to a saving knowledge. So you have the word of the Lord and then you have the Holy Spirit. The, it's just kind of like, how's, how's a baby made? Well, uh, it takes a mama and a daddy. A mama and a daddy. And they get together and they have a sexual intimate moment and she conceives. So you can't, you can't be saved. Uh, you can't be born, you know, just, just by one person. That takes two. And it takes two for you to be saved. It takes the word of the Lord and it takes the Holy Spirit. They're your mom and daddy, if, you may, if I may refer to it in that way, of your spiritual birth. The word of God and the spirit of the Lord. And he uses the breeze, the wind blowing, to illustrate the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, you know, you don't, you don't know where the wind's coming from. You don't know where it's going, but you feel it when it's there. You see as it blows through the, uh, the breeze blows through the leaves and you feel it against your skin and so forth. You can't, you can't see the wind. You can't see the Holy Spirit. But who convicted you? Who convinced you that you were a sinner 
and that you needed to be saved. The Holy Spirit does that. Jesus said, as recorded in the Gospel of John, that it was necessary in the 16th chapter, he said, for me to go to heaven. When I go to heaven, I'll send the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes into the world, what's he going to do? He will convict you of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. It's the responsibility of the Holy Spirit to the person we call the lost person who's separated from the Lord and is not saved. I can't convict, convince you that, that uh, you need to be saved. I can't convince you that, 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 uh, that you need to repent of your sins. That's not my job. My job, I'm the messenger boy. You are the messenger. You just tell the good news. It's the Holy Spirit's responsibility to convict and to convince a person that he is a sinner, that Jesus is the Son of God, and he must be saved. He must be born again. That's the responsibility of the Holy Spirit. And so we come, the, the word of the Lord uh, is like a mirror. When you got up this morning, hopefully you took time to look into the mirror to make sure your, your hair was combed and your face was washed and you ladies put your makeup on and everything. You look into the mirror and you see the real you. The Bible is like a mirror. You can look at, have you ever read the Bible and you, and you read a verse of scripture and said, boy, that's me. That's, that's, that, he's describing me. You, you, the Bible is divinely inspired and when you read it, the Holy Spirit will show you your real self. It will show you that you are a sinner and that Jesus is godly and your savior and you can be born again. So it takes the word of the Lord and it takes the Holy Spirit convicting you, convicting you of, of your need for salvation. This brings me to the fourth idea, and that is the evidences of the new birth. First of all, the necessity of it. You must, in order to see, you must, in order to be able to enter the kingdom of God, you must morally and spiritually be born again. It's possible for that to happen because God would not require of you this and then not make adequate provisions for it. And so then there's the explanation of it, of the physical birth compared to the spiritual birth. But then there's the evidence of it. How do you know you've been saved? How do you know that you're walking with the Lord? There's five evidences of it. These aren't exclusive, uh, uh, inclusive. There, there may be others, but I've given these five to you to help you to understand that you know. How do you know that you're going to, when you're saved? Well, first of all, you'll have a new appetite for righteousness. Your appetite's going to change. Matthew chapter five and verse six, Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So your appetite is not going to be for the things of the world. Those things that you've been involved in that has kept you away from God, you turn your back on those things and the Holy Spirit creates in you a hunger for righteousness. You want to do right. You want to live right. You want to be right. You want to speak right things. You want to enjoy the righteousness of the Lord and you hunger and crave for the righteous things of God. Do you have a hunger for God? Do you want to know God better? Is there a hunger and a thirst in your heart for the Lord? The second one is that you have a new love for God. A new love for God. 1 John 4, 19 says, we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. God took the initiative. We love self. We love the world. We love, we love carnal things. But God has taken the initiative. God has taken the first step. To demonstrate his love for us, Paul says in Romans chapter 5, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Holy Spirit shows you the crucifixion of Jesus in your mind and in your heart. And you realize, for God so loved the world, God so loved me, 
that he gave his only begotten son, that if I would believe in him, I would never perish, but I would have everlasting life. So I have a new love for the Lord because he first loved me. Thirdly, I have a new attitude towards sin. I no longer want to sin anymore. You know, you, you say, well, you get saved, you can do whatever you want to. Well, I already do what I want to. I do more than I want to. And, and so I, I have a, a, a want to not sin. I don't want to sin. I know that I'm human and when the devil tempts me, sometimes the temptation, I, I yield to it. You do the same thing. But I don't want to do it and I have a new appetite, a new attitude towards sin. Now in, in 1 John 3, if you want to turn in the Bibles to that verses, 1 John 3, 8 through 10, he uses the word practice there. And when you read it in verse 8 of 1 John 3, verse 8, the one who practices sin is of the evil one, the devil. He repeats it in verse 9. No one who is born of God practices sin. Verse 10, he says, by this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who, who does not practice righteousness is of God. So you read those verses of scripture and on the surface it said, well, boy, I could never do that. He who practices sin and I, I sin every day. But the but meaning of the verse is it's, a, it's not a habit with you to sin. It's not, it's not a perpetual thing that you do. You don't live a continuous lifestyle of sin. Yes, you, you'll, you'll sin sometimes. You, you fall down. You do what's wrong. But you'll never lose your salvation. Now, God, according to the book of Hebrews, if you continue to do that, he'll take you to the woodshed and work you over pretty good. He'll spank you spiritually some way or another. If you are his child, he's not going to let you get by with a continual, habitual lifestyle of sin. And he could possibly even, even take you prematurely in death. There, that does happen sometimes. But it's the person who does not practice as a habit, a lifestyle. If you say that you've been saved, sometimes people say, well, I got saved when I was a kid. Uh, and yeah, I was even baptized. Uh, but boy, you wouldn't know it by the way they live. They live like the devil. And if, and if that's true of your life, then one of two things is wrong. First of all, either you've never been saved you just think you have been, but you've never been saved. Or secondly, if you are saved and you live that kind of lifestyle, as I said, God's going to punish you for it. He's not going to let you get by. He's not going to allow you, if you're his child, to continue to embarrass him before the world by saying, people say, well, he says he's a Christian, she's a Christian, but look at the way they live. You couldn't tell it by the way they live. The places where they go to, the things that they read, the things that they see on TV or the internet or whatever. You practice habitually a lifestyle of sin then you're either not a child of God or God will spank you and correct you. He's not going to let you get by with it. So you have a, you have a hateful out. If I'm going to hate anything, I'm going to hate sin. Number four, you have a new affection for others, for the brethren of the church. 1 John 3, 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. So I have a, I have a love for you people. Hopefully you have a love for me. We love one another. And what enables me to love you and you to love me and us to love one another is the Holy Spirit living within us. And so I have a love, a love for God, a love for you. And then number five, a new desire to do God's will. First John 2, 17, the world is passing away and also it's lust. But the one who does the will of God will live forever. Do you want to do the Lord's will? And what is God's will for your life? Well, it's tailor-made for you. What God's will for my life 
uh, may, and it's different than what God's will for your life. There are some common things that God's will is for us. God wants us to be saved. That's for everybody. God wants us to live for him. That's for everybody. God wants us to love one another. That's for all of us. But my specific tailor-made will for my life was God wanted me to be a preacher. God wants you to be a righteous employee or employer. God wants you to be a righteous and, and, and holy teacher or a, a, a barber or working in the lawn, whatever it is. God has a tailor-made will for your life that is just fit exclusively for you, your needs, and your ability to serve him. And so you desire, I want to live for God. I want my life to count for the Lord. Well, this brings us to our conclusion. And so I ask you, have you experienced the new birth? Have you been born from above? You've been born physically. Have you been born again spiritually? I'm not, I want to make it clear to you. I am not talking about, are you a church member? I'm not talking about, have you been baptized or confirmed? I'm not talking about how much you give to the church or do you attend Sunday school or about your personal morality. Nicodemus had all of those things. You read the first verse, a couple of verses of John chapter 3, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a ruler of the Jews. He was a wealthy man because when you come to the end of the Gospels, it's Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea who bury the body of Jesus. And it says that Nicodemus had with him a hundred pounds of alloy and myrrh, which they would use to bathe the body of Jesus in. A hundred pounds of it, folks, in those days was an expensive thing. He could not have afforded it had he not been rich. So he was a rich man. He was a moral man. He was a religious man. And it was to a religious person that Jesus said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. He didn't understand it. What do you mean? I've got to go back to my mother's womb, be conceived again, go through nine months of pregnancy and get it all. No, he said, as you were born of the water, you must also be born from above of the spirit. And all of us, all of us, myself included, we all need to be born again. Religious people need the new birth. Good people need the, uh, need the new birth. Church members need the new birth. Evil people need the new birth. If we're going to heaven, we must be born again. We must be born again. You must be born again. You can be born again. You may be born again. You will be born again if you will turn in repentance to God and in faith, ask Jesus to forgive you. Let's bow together, please. If you have never repented of your sins and asked Jesus to save you, then if the Holy Spirit is convicting you and convincing you now of your need to do so, would you repeat this prayer after me? You can do it silently in your mind and in your heart. The Lord knows what's going on in your heart and in your mind. You can say it verbally if you choose to or just privately in your heart. But in some way, you need to say something like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I know I am a sinner. I realize my sins have separated me from God. I believe that Jesus is your son, Lord. I believe that he died on the cross for me. And I believe that he rose from the dead on the third day for me. Here and now, Lord, with all my heart, I ask Jesus, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. I accept you 
as my Savior and my Lord. Save me, Lord, and make me a brand new person and give me a brand new life. In your name I pray, amen. And if you have prayed that prayer and sincerely meant it for the first time, welcome to the kingdom of God. That's what makes you a believer. That's what makes you a Christian is your belief in Christ of turning from your sins and turning to him and realizing that you can't save yourself. Nobody else can save you. Jesus and Jesus alone. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And that is the name of the Lord Jesus. So the next step for you to do is to make it public. One way that you make it public is to come forward and allow us to enjoy the privilege of welcoming you into the kingdom of God and rejoicing with the angels in heaven over the salvation of one person. So we give an invitation and we ask if the Holy Spirit is leading you to come, then come. I'll be here at the front to receive you. If you're looking for a church home, come. If you just wanted to make it public, you don't live here, you live in some other town, then when you get back home, you find a good church that believes the Bible and loves Jesus and preaches the Lord. And join that church. Tell the pastor, get baptized as a believer in the Lord, not in order to be saved, but because you have been saved. You're, you're going to live for him now. Your attitude has changed. So we're going to stand and sing. Andre's going to lead us. So let's all stand, please. And if God's Holy Spirit leads you, you come.